0: Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media editor for the academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series has been accredited for continuing medical education credit. The American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at www.education.aaai.org forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. For today's episode, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Mike, Mark Dykowitz to today's episode. Dr. Dykowitz is the Raymond and Alberta Slavin Endowed Professor in Allergy and Immunology at St. Louis University School of Medicine and the Chief of the Section of Allergy and Immunology at St. Louis University. Dr. Dykowitz has a long and distinguished clinical research and academic career, including service as a past member of the Board of Directors for both the American Academy and American Board of Allergy and Immunology. He is here today to discuss the 2020 Practice Parameter Update for rhinitis, for which he served as the lead author. Neither Dr. Dykowitz nor I have any relevant relationships to disclose. Dr. Dykowitz, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us today, and welcome to the podcast.
1: It's really my pleasure.
0: Well, I think this is going to be a great conversation, and we're going to take a deep dive into what the parameters, um, you know, uh, talk about and some of the advice that they give. Uh, But I'd really like to start just by asking you to give us a little background as to, you know, how and why this new parameter was developed. Did this originate from a group of allergists just sort of sitting around discussing their personal experiences, or was there a more formal review of the evidence surrounding various aspects of rhinitis?
1: Certainly, this is a more formal process. The parameter resulted first looking at the outline that had been used for a predecessor document, the 2008 uh, Complete Joint Task Force Practice Parameter on Rheonitis. And then with the time interval involved, there really was the recognition that we had to very broadly review all literature uh, to update and review the recommendations. So a work group was convened, and among other tasks, they um, uh, developed a list of key clinical questions and topics that should be addressed including some topics that had not been addressed in the predecessor document. Uh, there was, the uh, in the course of the development, uh, the publication of the 2017 uh, focused uh, document on some key questions for treatment of seasonal allergic rhinitis, but then subsequently we turned to development of the more comprehensive 2020 document that we're talking about, and that Encompasses all forms of rhinitis, from allergic to non-allergic rhinitis.
0: Mm. It, it is a very comprehensive document. What's the time frame? Like, how long did this take to develop and write and and edit and then uh, finally get published?
1: Uh, I could only say years, <laughs> <almost beyond laughs> count, and I'm sure thousands of hours for. Uh, Myself and my co-editor uh, Dana Wallace. It was a very time-intensive process uh, process and one of the things we would develop drafts and Circulate them to the work group and then also to the joint task force on practice parameter and so many sections went through 10 even 20 reviews when They were uh, uh, completed
0: mm, Yeah, well, we all thank you for all of your hard work and uh, this really is just a, a great um you know, guidance for all of us as as practicing clinicians. Who who's the target audience for these recommendations? You know, who is this aimed for?
1: The document was developed to assist uh, physicians and other healthcare practitioners, but also we had an eye to giving enough information so that patients uh, could help make decisions regarding diagnosis and therapy for anitis. Uh, oh. I I would say that. We systematically were developing the recommendations to address care of adult and adolescent patients ages 12 to 15. We did include a section on treatment of younger children, but one of the difficulties that we dealt with is that uh, when you look at the data available for younger children, you don't have the, the depth of data, and you're ending up extrapolating data from adult studies so your recommendations by nature have to be more tentative and less certain.
0: Mm, no, absolutely. This this is a comprehensive 47 page document. I believe I counted 598 references. Uh, so unfortunately, I don't think that we'll be able to, nor would anybody want to listen to us go through this line by line. Uh, there are also 37 different recommendations that focus on specifics of diagnosis and management. Um, but you know, before we dive into some of these major areas, how do you recommend readers or our listeners use this document? Do they need to go start to finish or can they kind of go to certain uh, sections that are more relevant to what they're looking for?
1: What I would suggest is you start out at the beginning of the document where there's a table that's entitled, what is new or newly emphasized in Renita's 2020? I would start there because that really highlights what are the um, new targeted areas. So for instance, Uh, There is mention of four new algorithms, which are based on a combination of evidence and expert opinion that can guide the clinician in the treatment of allergic rhinitis and non-allergic rhinitis. Uh, The the area discusses new tables that can assist in the differential diagnosis of rhinitis and also uh, the diagnosis and treatment of conditions that might mimic rhinitis. And then we really try to highlight those topics that are new or newly emphasized. So going through that, I would then review a subsequent table, table rather. I would then review a subsequent table that lists all 37 recommendations. And when you run through a re- recommendation, when you run through a recommendation that you find novel or different from your practice, I would go to the pertinent section of the document to read the explanation for that recommendation.
0: I love that you pointed that out, because a lot of the information is going to be novel or, you know, it represents a different um, paradigm shift in how we previously either diagnosed or treated various aspects of rhinitis. So I think that that's really important to keep in mind that, as you stated, this is based upon the body of evidence to date. Uh, and this really isn't just you know the opinion of a couple of allergists out there, so if you if people read something that seems foreign to them there's a there's a reason for it, and uh, there's a, you know a deeper dive in the text well let's let's get into it. So just to start off, um, can you just you know describe the diagnosis of rhinitis and what this term means and some of the cardinal symptoms that go along with it?
1: Sure. Uh, now, although the term rhinitis would connote inflammation, some forms of non allergic rhinitis, such as vasomotor rhinitis or atrophic rhinitis, uh, don't really have inflammation at all. So, as we uh, started to do in our 2008 parameter, we continued to define rhinitis by symptom, with the diagnosis of rhinitis suggested by the presence of one or more of the following, and those would be nasal congestion, rhinorrhea, anterior and posterior, sneezing, and itching. Uh, We can then go on to classify rhinitis by pathogenic mechanisms, but uh, I would start our discussion there.
0: Okay. So to enter into the equation, we just basically have to have one of those either chronic or intermittent symptoms of rhinitis. And then the next, you know, one of the first sections is headlined rhinitis phenotypes. Can you help us better understand what a phenotype is and then give us some examples when it comes to rhinitis?
1: Well, a phenotype can be broadly defined as the observable characteristics of a condition. So if we're talking about rhinitis, phenotypes could include allergic rhinitis, different forms of non-allergic rhinitis, and that could include non-allergic rhinitis with eosinophilia syndrome or infectious rhinitis, and then uh, other forms of non-allergic rhinitis such as vasomotor rhinitis uh, or atrophic rhinitis.
0: And you mentioned before that there are a lot of sort of mimickers that may lead to uh, misdiagnosis or inaccurate classification. What are some of the other conditions that can cause similar symptoms yet be completely different in regards to their underlying cause or pathophysiology?
1: Right. Uh, That's a very important question uh, because you obviously have to have a um, differential in your mind if you're going to come up with the right diagnosis. Uh, some common conditions that can mimic rhinitis would include several anatomic causes. Uh, and we do uh, note that, for instance, nasal septal deviation is a very common cause of fixed nasal obstruction. Although it can be a unilateral problem, it also can be uh, bilateral so Just because somebody has a stuffy nose on both sides doesn't mean they do not have nasal septal deviation. Also, we have to be mindful of nasal valve collapse as another anatomic cause for uh, nasal obstruction. Uh, The internal nasal valve, of course, is the narrowest portion of the nasal cavity, and the anatomical area is bounded uh, medially by the nasal septum and laterally by the inferior edge of the upper lateral cartilage and the uh, anterior aspect of the inferior turbinate. So, nasal valve collapse refers to any weakness or further narrowing of the nasal valve and can really result in significant problems with nasal congestion that are not going to respond to medication. Then, of course, we have turbinate hypertrophy, uh, which can account for either unilateral or bilateral obstruction. And then chronic sinusitis, uh, with or without nasal polyps, uh, uh, pharyngeal nasal reflux, And very uncommon conditions, but things we have to keep in mind, such as cerebral spinal fluid rhinorrhea, ciliary uh, dyskinesia syndrome, and, for instance, granulomatous or connective tissue disease.
0: So, I mean, you're describing a a wide range of very different causes of of rhinitis. So people can have similar symptoms, but yet, you know, the underlying cause is just vastly different based upon all these. So when, when a clinician has somebody in front of them in the office setting, in the clinical setting... Uh, and they have concerns about rhinitis, what are some of the questions and answers that they should um, use to try to elicit you know, the proper diagnosis?
1: Well, I think this is an area that is uh, especially suited to specialists, allergists, immunologists. Um, and we are very accustomed to asking appropriate questions, which could include age of onset, duration of symptoms, uh, frequency of symptoms, severity, timing during the year, Back to triggers, the pattern of presentation, and then the progression of each uh, symptom. Uh, history also really would include the success or failure of past therapeutic interventions, uh, including both over-the-counter and uh, prescribed medications. Uh, you can also really uh, do a full job by looking at family history and a uh, personal history of comorbid respiratory conditions such as asthma. Um, And then also recognize that, uh, speaking of asthma, that uh, history of symptoms suggestive of asthma uh, might be elicited uh, by a little bit further questioning. So, uh, history specifically of wheezing, shortness of breath, or chest tightness. And be mindful that in terms of allergic rhinitis, um, that uh, that can coexist in about 75% of all patients with asthma. Of course, you also do want to look at the overall medical, social, and psychiatric history, uh, and environmental exposures. Uh, And then since you are going to be making some shared decision making, uh, getting a history from the patient as to what their wishes and desires are uh, in terms of selecting diagnostic procedures.
0: I mean, you're describing really a very comprehensive list of questions uh, and then with each answer sort of changing the the algorithm per se in regards to what the possible diagnosis may be or even next treatment options or things like that. Do you have, you know, personally when you see patients, do you have sort of a, a standardized approach to it? Or um have you just been, you know, doing this for so long and you're so good at it that you just sort of uh can tease out some of these questions? Or any advice for, for our listeners on how they should approach this?
1: Well, over a period of many years, uh, I've developed a template that really elicits these questions. And because I'm also in a a teaching setting where I have rotating residents and students coming in that may not have much um, background in uh, different types of rhinitis, it's, it's really almost a script for them to ask patients these questions. We also have a new patient questionnaire that uh, in a more efficient way, I think, tries to capture responses to these sorts of questions.
0: Okay. Well, all right, now we've taken our history. Uh, we have some sense of what may be, you know, contributing to causing um, you know, our patient's symptoms. What are the important elements of the physical exam that we should consider as part of the diagnosis?
1: Uh, Well, first of all, we have to recognize that there are no pathognomonic findings that really help distinguish allergic versus non-allergic versus infectious rhinitis. You can see findings such as pale, boggy nasal mucosa, allergic shiners, pharyngeal hyperplasia. I think looking at the nasal septum is important, and that's not only uh, to determine, for instance, if there's a nasal septal deviation, but to assure that there's no erosion to begin with or septal perforation. And you want to establish that at baseline uh, prior to prescribing some medications such as nasal steroids that might lead to adverse effects. Um, I also mentioned earlier the importance of nasal valve collapse. So particularly when patients are not responding well to treatment for rhinitis, I think the nasal exam uh, should include uh, assessment of the patency of the nasal valve. And the way that's done is by performing the caudal maneuver, where you pull the patient's cheek laterally to open the nasal valve angle. And that could suggest nasal valve pathology and be one explanation for why there's not very good response. Uh, and then I, Even though the parameter is on rhinitis, we have to be mindful that there are comorbidities. So a physical exam, should also look at the lower airway, the eyes, ears, skin, to identify some findings that could go along with uh, other comorbidities such as allergic conjunctivitis or otitis, eustachian tube dysfunction, chronic rhinocitis, uh, asthma, atopic dermatitis, and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. So just to kind of summarize, because I think you, you really touched upon some important concepts, there, there's no one finding that says, yes, this is exactly what's causing this patient's rhinitis, but really we're looking for a series of clues of what may is may be present or may be absent. Does that uh, sound accurate? Exactly. Okay, excellent. And then I I want to go back to something you mentioned because I think it's really important. As I read this this document, I'm thinking the initial diagnosis. But what about follow-up? So are we are we still asking the same questions and doing the same exam? Um, you know, based upon the response to treatment that was decided upon at the first visit, or how should we go about that when those patients come back to see us uh, for these concerns?
1: Well, of course, we have to be selective for an established visit as to how much mm-hmm. time we can uh, properly um, devote, uh, but. You know, if there's not a good response, of course, uh, asking about compliance of medication, uh, which is a major issue, Uh, asking if there are environmental changes that may be impacting things, Um, and uh, it it may well also be, you know, has the the pattern changed uh, since the initial visit, and that would raise questions. I mean, sometimes people come back and they develop um, intercurrent uh, sinus infections.
0: Mm, Okay, excellent. Why is cough highlighted as a symptom to consider for allergic and non-allergic rhinitis?
1: We felt that cough as a consequence of rhinitis, particularly allergic rhinitis, is often underappreciated. And if we're talking about chronic cough, which you formally define in adults as cough persisting for more than eight weeks, um, this often, if not usually, is due to upper airway cough syndrome. Formerly referred to as post-nasal drip syndrome.
0: Uh, You could
1: also have it from asthma or GE reflux disease. But accordingly, we felt that in a document on parameter, it was really important to have some focus on cough. Um, And I would also point out that sometimes there's a sense that cough is considered to be a comorbidity of allergic rhinitis rather than being viewed as a distinct symptom of allergic rhinitis. And just one statistic that demonstrates how big a deal uh, cough is: there was one large multinational observational study that found essentially half of patients with allergic rhinitis frequently reported cough as a symptom, uh, although maybe only eleven percent had cough as the main reason for seeking medical attention.
0: Mm, yeah, so that's, I think that's important to highlight as not to be overlooked. Now, as we move towards testing and things like that, what role does inhalant allergen IgE testing have in the diagnosis of rhinitis? How does that help us uh, identify causes and treatment and things like that?
1: Sure. Well, of course, in the big picture in clinical practice, uh, especially in primary care, the diagnosis of allergic rhinitis is often made solely by history, for instance, in, in seasonal allergic rhinitis. We recommend that um, allergen skin prick testing or specific IgE blood testing be completed to confirm the diagnosis of allergic rhinitis in a compatible history. And that can be really very important to differentiate allergic from non-allergic rhinitis, which is very difficult. Let's say in the case of perennial rhinitis, uh, to differentiate that by history alone is not very successful. So by performing allergy testing, though, you can provide um, really informed recommendations about allergen avoidance, uh, choosing appropriate medications. I mean, we know that some medications such as oral antihistamines, leukotriene receptor antagonists would not be appropriate uh, for non allergic rhinitis. And of course, uh, conceivably, whether the patient would be a candidate for allergen immunotherapy.
0: Mm. Yeah, are there instances where you can have incidental findings and somebody who has, you know, non-allergic rhinitis and yet they still have elevated IgE testing and how do you sort that out?
1: That's a very important point because you always want to try to fit together the history with the uh, the findings of the allergy test. I mean if somebody's got some tests that are coming back positive for a couple of seasonal allergens and there's absolutely no uptick in symptoms during those seasons that uh, data is not really relevant. I think actually one of the real problems is trying to separate out when you have a patient who may have mixed allergic and non-allergic rhinitis, and this is on a perennial basis, and you're trying to sort out how much of it might be because of a perennial allergic uh, basis versus a perennial non-allergic. And that's, well, it's problematic, and that is why we have to go beyond just looking uh, slam dunk at the um, allergy test results and tried to fit it all together with the bigger uh, history.
0: Mm, sure, sure. Yeah, I, I found something very interesting as I went through the different recommendations and I saw that there's a very specific recommendation against any type of food allergy, skin or serum testing in the evaluation of rhinitis. I mean this seems like common sense to me, but this was, you know, given special attention to these parameters. Why was that?
1: Well, as we sit around for hundreds and thousands of hours <laughs> We're really trying to improve patient care. And there is a sense that uh, very commonly out there, uh, there's a lot of food allergy testing that is going on for patients who are presenting with rhinitis. You know, outside of the oral allergy syndrome, there's really no evidence of IgE mediated food induced uh, nasal symptoms without the presence of anaphylaxis, with whole body symptoms. Things like, you know, hives, difficulty breathing, diarrhea. So there's really no indication to test for food allergens when evaluating patients presenting with symptoms of rhinitis. You also have to be mindful, and get back a bit to your question earlier about the uh, uh, how you interpret the positive allergy test results. If you're looking at uh, skin test uh, testing or specific IgE testing to foods. Those can be less than uh, 50% specific for clinical food allergy, and therefore really opens up the possibility of unnecessary food testing leading to unwarranted food avoidance, reducing uh, quality of life, uh, uncalled for financial expenditure, and uh, possible nutritional deficiency. So testing with a panel of foods without attention to the medical history and the epidemiology of allergic rhinitis in an individual can really result in mismanagement.
0: Mm, Yeah, I'm glad you stated that, and I'm glad it's in the parameters. I've seen many patients diagnosed with multiple food allergies that they didn't know they had because they went to see somebody uh, due to concerns about seasonal allergic rhinitis, and then they walk out with an egg, milk, and peanut allergy. So I I also agree that it's very important to avoid unnecessary testing uh, when people present with those symptoms. Now, what do you tell, uh, at the risk of getting very controversial here, what do you tell to all those people people out there that are convinced that milk uh, makes them have increased mucus production?
1: (laughs) That is a conundrum, and I face uh, patients like that too. Um, typically, I try to defer doing the testing with some explanation about it. Uh, also, stating that uh, you know avoiding dairy products can have some nutritional problems. I mean, have I in my career ever uh, tested for milk to try to? persuade somebody from that occasionally but then you also run into the the risk that if it does happen to be positive then you're you're sort of stuck it it's, it's not an easy answer
0: yeah it's 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 a very long standing sort of myth that's out there that we're up against. Okay, so we've done a great job, We, you've done a great job, of really discussing the diagnosis and uh, how we use the history and physical exam to identify different types of rhinitis. Let's transition to treatment options, and I I really want to start with the lead on this one. What is the single best first-line treatment for rhinitis across the board, period?
1: Simple answer, an intranasal corticosteroid is the single best, most effective treatment for rhinitis.
0: Okay. Um, So you recommend that's the first line, regardless of the symptoms that that people are having or even the potential causes. That's the recommendation of the parameter.
1: I would say it's somewhat more of a nuanced answer when you ask the question that way. When we look Mm -hmm. at the algorithms, um, there's been a great deal of thought as to how one might select another option as first line. So for instance, Let's say we had a patient that did not want to take regular medication, uh, they had allergic rhinitis, uh, they might have short-term symptoms for a day or so, and they were relatively mild to moderate, one might use an intranasal antihistamine um, as an option, uh, or for very mild symptoms, possibly an oral antihistamine. So, uh, that's where you get into the weed, so to speak, uh, that there could be some uh, consideration of different factors that would make you move towards use of other medications in a repertoire. But in summary, a nasal corticosteroid is going to be your single best bet.
0: And when people uh, use intranasal corticosteroids, is it uh, most effective to use them sort of daily and consistently for a period of time to treat symptoms, or can they use them just every once in a while whenever they start to have symptoms?
1: Uh, they are most effective when used on a regular basis, but intranasal corticosteroids can have benefit um, in PRN use. Uh, now, the question is in terms of evidence, how PRN ish is the PRN use? <laughs> I actually had been involved in a, a study years ago, and, and it showed that if people were using it maybe 50% or more of the time as PRN, uh, it certainly could be very effective. Um, but uh, the onset of action of nasal corticosteroids, although that estimate varies, uh, can often be within 12 hours, so it can suit itself to PRN use. Uh, I would also say one other feature of this document is we do have a section in there looking at the onset of action of different agents in allergic rhinitis, and depending on the patient presentation, the onset of action can be an important factor in shared decision-making as to what uh, medical approach you might go to, and uh, that's that's in there, if you will.
0: No, that's great. I'm really glad that you pointed that out. Um, but And before we sort of move on from interna- from different types of intranasal st- uh, sprays, can we use them um, concurrently? So can you use your steroid spray at the same time you're using uh, intranasal antihistamine, for instance?
1: Uh, very much so, and we do go through sections of the document to talk about what combination approaches can be useful, and specifically combination of intranasal corticosteroids with other uh, nasal sprays, such as intranasal antihistamine or intranasal decongestant or uh, intranasal uh, ipratropium would certainly be options.
0: Okay. Now, one of the longest uh, standing and widely available treatment options for uh, allergic rhinitis or other types of rhinitis would be oral antihistamines. These are widely available over the counter by prescription. But, you know, why should we try to avoid these first generation oral antihistamines, such as diphenhydramine, in favor of second generation or newer antihistamines for the treatment of rhinitis?
1: Some information about this it has been well known for some time, but we also reviewed some new information. So information that's been out there includes that the first generation antihistamines can produce uh, sedation that may not be subjectively perceived, uh, performance impairment uh, lead to poor sleep quality, sleep architecture, and also anticholinergic mediated symptoms such as dry eyes, dry mouth, constipation, or, or urinary headaches. Hist- Uh, We do have data, of course, that show that first-generation antihistamines can lead to performance in uh, impairment in school and uh, driving issues. Uh, Now, more recently, there have been some concerns raised about whether there's a higher risk of dementia with agents that have anticholinergic properties. And first-generation antihistamines, of course, can have anticholinergic properties. Second-generation antihistamines don't. And there was one prospective uh, cohort study that we quoted that suggested a link between the higher cumulative use of uh, strong anticholinergics. And that would include first-generation antihistamines and tricyclic antidepressants, and the risk of developing dementia. And actually, over 70% uh, of those patients with longer-term use being diagnosed with Alzheimer's.
0: Mm. So, uh, are there... Is the mechanism of action the same if you have a second generation antihistamine? Um, and you know these would be things like cetirizine or fexofenadine or loratadine or things like that. Does that work the same way as diphenhydramine, or is there what's the difference there?
1: They work the same way in terms of being an inverse agonist for the H1 histamine receptors. But the first generation antihistamine, if you will, have uh, less selectivity for the H1 receptor. Sure and can affect other receptors, which, in the case of uh, uh, cholinergic, uh, anticholinergic effects, uh, involves the uh, impact that they have on non-histamine receptors in the body, muscarinic receptors.
0: Okay, so they work similar, but uh, more side effects with the first-generation oral antihistamines. You mentioned... Leukotriene receptor antagonist before, and you know, one of the more common forms of that would be the medication montelukast. Can you explain for us what this does and the mechanism of action, and why it's not a first-line treatment for rhinitis? And in addition to that, are there any precautions that clinicians need to discuss with patients when they prescribe montelukast?
1: Sure. Well, montelukast, of course, is a leukotriene receptor antagonist, and leukotriene production can be part of the allergic response, and vary in terms of the relative importance in different uh, patients. Uh, I mean, the drug has been uh, approved for use down to age six months for treatment of allergic rhinitis. But we ended up suggesting that the clinician not select monolucase for initial treatment of allergic rhinitis due to two main reasons. One is, if you look at the relative efficacy compared to other alternative agents, uh, monolucase is um, well, about the same or less effective than oral antihistamine and certainly less effective than intranasal corticosteroids. Uh, and again, as we've mentioned earlier, generally an intranasal corticosteroid be, would be your preferred therapy for more severe allergic rhinitis. But the second reason uh, that's been emerging is that there are post-marketing reports of rare neuropsychiatric events from montelukast, and those can include everything from, um, well, fleet disturbances, depression, anxiety, aggression, psychotic reactions, and suicidal thinking and behavior. Uh, We did note in the document that uh, we do need some high-quality epidemiological studies to fully evaluate the association and and quantify the risks of those uh, neuropsychiatric adverse events. But as a result, um, in a risk balance, uh, uh, as a result in a risk-side effect balance uh, assessment, uh, we really put down on the list uh, the use of montelukast for allergic rhinitis to uh, limit it to patients who are not treated effectively with or can't tolerate other alternative treatments.
0: Mm, okay. Thanks for explaining that. Uh, you know, a lot of people like to use oral or intranasal decongestants whenever they feel stuffy or congested. How? What's the mechanism of action for these types of medications and what recommendations are made in the rhinitis parameters regarding how these medications should be used?
1: Well, both the oral and the topical intranasal decongestants are alpha-adrenergic agonists, so they can improve uh, nasal airflow. Um, by virtue of their effects on causing nasal base friction and decreased nasal edema. Now relative to oral decongestants, we did make the point that uh, although pseudoephedrine has good demonstration of benefit, phenylephrine does not. And we do not recommend that um, in our treatment algorithms. Relative to the intranasal decongestant, we don't routinely recommend them for continuous use because of the potential development of so-called rhinitis uh, medicamentosa, where you get alpha receptor tachyphylaxis. But um, there is a new recommendation that we put forth, and that is because we now have some data that shows if you have concomitant administration of an intranasal corticosteroid with an intranasal decongestant, that seems to significantly reduce the risk for development of uh, rhinitis medicamentosa, So, uh, we do make a statement that uh, in patients with persistent nasal congestion, who are unresponsive to an intranasal corticosteroid uh, or even an intranasal corticosteroid, intranasal antihistamine combination, you can offer them combination therapy with the addition of an intranasal decongestant for up to four weeks.
0: Okay, so thoughtful use of it. Just, I mean, I'm hearing this theme from you <laughs> over and over again. Thoughtful approaches to diagnosis and management, shared decision-making, uh, and, you know, sort of selecting therapies uh, based upon the symptoms you're treating and, and the, the diagnosis at hand. Um, there are other intranasal treatments that are discussed in the parameters, including uh, things such as capsaicin, ipratropium, and chromalin. Can you briefly discuss what these agents do and how they can best be utilized for treating rhinitis?
1: Uh, well, to start off with, intranasal ipratropium is a topical anticholinergic agent. So that does help reduce rhinorrhea, uh, particularly anterior rhinorrhea. And it also works in both allergic and nonallergic rhinitis in addition to the common cold. So we recommend that in patients with uh, allergic rhinitis or nonallergic rhinitis who have rhinorrhea as their main nasal symptom, they could be offered uh, intranasal ipratropium. And also, if the patient is already on, for instance, an intranasal corticosteroid, but they're still having persistent rhinorrhea, you could consider the addition of intranasal uh, ipratropium. Also, ipratropium could be a uh, well-suited medication for reducing gustatory food-related rhinitis rhinorrhea. Now, chromalin uh, is theoretically an agent that stabilizes mast cells and inhibits mast cell mediator release, although that may not explain all of its benefits. Uh, we don't think it has much of a role in treatment of allergic rhinitis uh, generally. And among other things, its uh, agent, if you're going to use it on an ongoing basis, requires four to six times day administration. However, we did uh, look at the use of intranasal, intrap- uh, intranasal, We did look at the use of intranasal chromalin as an option that could be used just prior to acute allergen exposure, as there is evidence that that can reduce symptoms of allergic rhinitis from episodic uh, allergen exposure. So, for instance, you have someone who knows they're allergic to pets. They're going over to a home with pets. They anticipate there's problems. One option would be to use intranasal chromalin before they go over there. That said, intranasal chromone is not widely available in uh, some drug stores, you have to order it online. Lastly, uh, capsaicin, uh, which is a pungent compound found in hot red peppers, um, is the selective uh, TRPV1 ion channel agonist that ends up basically reducing terasympathetic uh, hyperactivity and neuropeptide release. So there is evidence that when it's topically applied to the nasal mucosa, It can be helpful for non allergic or mixed rhinitis to reduce congestion and rhinorrhea and post nasal drainage. Um, We didn't come out with a formal recommendation for it, however, in part because in the US we don't have, uh, shall we say, consistent products. uh, And when we looked at the literature, different concentrations of capsaicin have been used in studies. So we bring this up as a You will have fallback positions that might be considered, but uh, not something that would be mainline treatment.
0: Have you ever, out of curiosity, put capsaicin inside your nose? Do you know what it feels like?
1: Um, It burns.
0: I can imagine. Yeah, I just, I found that very interesting. Um, of course, if it's, it's being used uh, it, uh, and there's evidence to support it. It's important to talk about it, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating treatment. You know, you mentioned this diagnosis, gustatory uh, rhinorrhea or gustatory rhinitis. I, I love spicy food and my nose tends to run or I sniffle or get a little post-nasal drip when I eat a lot of jalapenos. Is that what that condition is referring to or is that, does that entail something else?
1: No, that is, is certainly what we're talking about. And in some patients, uh, gustatory rhinitis doesn't require particularly hot or spicy food. It can be kind of even some bland food that will elicit problems in some patients. So in those situations, taking um, intranasal ipratropium maybe 15, 20 minutes before a meal can really uh, prevent some significant drainage that can otherwise be, I would say, in some cases, almost socially debilitating to people mm-hmm. where they want to go out and, and eat uh, with friends uh, or in public because they're afraid that they're going to have a drippy, runny nose.
0: Oh, boy. Sure. We've discussed so many different types of medications and, and diagnoses thus far, and it seems like all the different medicines work in different ways for different symptoms. Uh, you mentioned a couple combinations before, but are there combinations that tend to be more effective than others? Or can really, you know, I imagine people with their utility belt and 20 different nose sprays, can they just sort of squirt anything whenever they want? Or is there, you know, a method to the madness?
1: We did have several statements that uh, specifically addressed the combination of intranasal corticosteroids and intranasal antihistamines. Now, of course, in uh, practical terms, there's even uh, a product uh, available where both types of agents are combined together. But you could also um, have use of separate bottles with the uh, different uh, component agents and we, and we did bring up the point that in both allergic rhinitis and non-allergic rhinitis, the combination of uh, the nasal corticosteroid and the nasal antihistamine can lead to improved uh, control. Um, in addition, other combo sprays that uh, could be used would be intranasal steroid with an intranasal ipotropium uh, approach when you have uncontrolled rhinorrhea with the monotherapy of the nasal steroid. Um, We've already discussed use of an intranasal corticosteroid with an intranasal decongestant. Uh, In terms of other combinations beyond nose sprays, uh, an oral antihistamine plus an oral decongestant can lead to greater relief, but that has to be given with the consideration whether the pseudoephedrine uh, would be tolerated. Of course, it can be adverse effects from that. Um, that does bring up the question about, okay, which combinations only maybe work or don't work at all. And um, the combination of an oral antihistamine with an oral leukotriene receptor antagonist uh, can have an additive effect looking at some studies, although other studies don't show that. Um, these These days, though, because of the problems uh, that have arisen with concerns about the neuropsychiatric side effects, uh, we did not encourage the combo use of an oral antihistamine plus a oral leukotriene uh, receptor antagonist, um, as, as of the earlier um, line approach, although that would be an option. Um, and I think one thing that does bear some special discussion, and, and this was one topic that we had brought up in the a 2017 focused uh, parameter document on seasonal allergic and that is the combination use of an oral antihistamine with an intranasal corticosteroid. Um, you know this is a very commonly used approach. You have a patient that uh, isn't uh, responding well to an oral antihistamine. You add a nasal corticosteroid, uh, and when you look at the controlled trials where you are comparing the monotherapy of an oral antihistamine versus a nasal steroid versus combined therapy of a uh, oral antihistamine plus a nasal steroid you actually cannot show superior benefit with the combo therapy as opposed to monotherapy with the nasal steroid so although there are some caveats about this recommendation we are trying to discourage the general combined use of oral antihistamines and nasal steroids with the idea for many patients, it's really not giving them any incremental benefit over monotherapy with the nasal steroid.
0: That is really interesting. Uh, you're right. That's the, sort of been the, the common practice for a long, long time for a lot of folks who suffer from seasonal allergies. And the bulk of our discussion today and the parameters as well in regards to treatment is focused on topical therapy with intranasal sprays. But you know, you know better than anybody, there's a lot of resistance among our patients, in regards to using nose sprays, sometimes they burn or sting, or it just feels funny to put something in your nose. Do you have any practical advice uh, to help patients uh, better utilize these so they're they're well tolerated?
1: I mean, I do think the uh, strategy of instructing the patient that there could be runoff, but then having them use, if you will, a nose-to-toe technique that you put the spray in. Uh, the nose first, then they dip down even to the level of the the waist, Um, hold 20 seconds, uh, let the, as I put it, let the spray get into the nooks and crannies inside the nose and then stand up. That allows some patients to tolerate nose sprays. And of course, some of the nose sprays among the corticosteroids, for instance, will have different sensory attributes. Some will have smells, some will not. And uh, sometimes the switcheroo can uh, allow a patient to accept things a bit better. Um, Among um, nasal antihistamines where you can get a bitter taste, I mean, sometimes people tolerate nasal olipatidine rather than nasal So I work with the patient, uh, sort of warn them up front there can be some issues. And I think I at least get uh, a lot more people uh, tolerating nose spray, approaches than otherwise uh, might
0: be inclined to. Sure. It's a little different than just uh, throwing a spray at them and saying, good luck. (laughs) There's a little more education involved. Absolutely. What do these parameters recommend regarding the use of allergen immunotherapy for the treatment of rhinitis? Well, we certainly do uh,
1: think it can play an important role, and we suggest that subcutaneous or sublingual. We certainly do believe that Allergen immunotherapy can play an important role in the treatment of allergic rhinitis. And we do specify that subcutaneous or sublingual tablets uh, can be offered in patients with moderate to severe allergic rhinitis. And considerations would be those patients who aren't controlled well with allergen avoidance or uh, pharmacotherapy, those who might choose immunotherapy as the method of treatment in an effort to avoid adverse effects of medications or long-term costs of medications, uh, Or other patients might desire the potential benefit of immunotherapy to prevent or reduce the uh, severity of uh, some comorbid symptoms um, such as uh, asthma. Uh, so we certainly do believe there's a, a clear role for allergen immunotherapy in appropriately selected patients.
0: Hmm. Many people prefer the use of natural or alternative remedies as opposed to prescription medications. Uh, is there any evidence that supports treatments such as acupuncture or herbal remedies for the treatment of rhinitis or, or any other of uh, similar remedies?
1: It's an important question because uh, some data suggests that up to a third of the population are using complementary uh, health approaches in their health care. So we did a very thorough literature review to look at the evidence for uh, acupuncture and herbal remedies in the treatment of allergic rhinitis. And we looked at Chinese herbal remedies, mixtures of Indian plants, uh, the plant Butterberg, and overall the problem was there was a low level of evidence. However, for acupuncture, um, even though we concluded that we could not make a recommendation for or against the use of acupuncture, uh, we did find results that uh, there could be a modest benefit, uh, although there was mixed uh, data about this. Um, some of the benefit reported was of uncertain clinical importance, but putting this in perspective, acupuncture was found to be very safe with no serious adverse effects reported in any study. Now about the herbal remedies, uh, shall we say the more uh, encouraging data, Uh, was that about Butterbur uh, from some randomized controlled trials uh, with 10 different products. And it was found that this improves symptoms and quality of life comparably with a non-stating antihistamine. Um, Now, that said, um, the National Institutes of Health does um, uh, warn that Butterbur products can have uh, some pyrolyzidine alkaloids, which can cause liver injury. So they recommend that only products that are certified to be free of these alkaloids should be used. There's also a potential for allergic reactions to butter burn patients who are sensitized to ragweed, chrysanthemums, marigolds, daisies. So that has to be kept in mind as well.
0: Mm. Oh, thank you. That's so fascinating. Thank you for that that wonderful summary on that. Because as you mentioned, a lot of patients do ask about these types of therapies so it's always important to know what the evidence supports and at least point them in the right direction boy we've covered a lot of information uh and again we will direct all of our listeners to read the full rhinitis parameters for a detailed discussion and explanation of all these recommendations including those different algorithms that you mentioned do we miss any major areas i think i would
1: point out that people should read our section on pregnancy because there has been some interval information that's become available that raises new safety concerns uh, during pregnancy about the use of intranasal triamcinolone and intranasal decongestants. Uh, And then there's also some additional evidence that uh, supports and extends our previous recommendations to avoid oral decongestants. Um, I also would uh, point out that we have written a section on local allergic rhinitis, uh, that, of course, is the entity, sometimes referred to as entopy, where there's a clinical history of uh, allergic nose symptoms following allergen exposure, but you have negative skin tests uh, or uh, in vitro tests or IgE and still have a positive nasal allergen provocation uh, challenge. Uh, we basically concluded that more research is needed, but that
0: Dr. Dykowitz, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your schedule to be with us today and discuss these very important parameters, and I think that this was really helpful uh, just to walk people through uh, what the evidence shows and and highlight some of the recommendations that are put forth there. Uh, Before we depart, is there anything else you'd like to add?
1: No, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking through the parameter, and I guess I would just encourage people to look at the big document. It can be overwhelming because of its length, but uh, there's a lot in there. And uh, especially for um, allergy immunology specialists, rhinitis is uh, uh, one of our key areas of care, and we want to be fully up-to-date in what we're doing.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you again.
1: Great pleasure. Thanks.
0: We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Information about credit claiming for this and other episodes can be found at wwweducationaaiorg forward slash podcasts. Credit claiming will be available for one year from the episode's original release date. Please visit www.aaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links, including to the parameters from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.